for joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God without error and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. Thank today you. we're going to continue our series on grace. I've tried very, very hard to be as loving and kind as I can be. Uh, I'm usually very pointed. I think I'm still loving and kind, but I'm very pointed and challenging and I rebuke more often than maybe some people prefer. But uh, if you got a problem with that, then just read your word and see if you still have a problem with that. Uh, but today I'm going to talk about grace meets the need out of chapter 9 of Luke. And so if you want to turn there, we this will be the third week we've discussed grace. And the first discussion we had about grace was how where grace finds its genesis, where it finds its beginning. It finds its beginning in the love that God has for us. The fact of the matter is that God so loved us that he did what? He sent his son Jesus to die for us that we might have eternal life. So God loved us and because of that love for us, extended mercy to us, well, mercy in action is compassion, and then compassion extends grace. So if you follow that all the way back, you get what you get from the hand of God because he loves you. That's it. Cut out all the craziness, all the middle stuff. God loves you. Thank you, Lord. And it's amazing to me. Because I have been very unlovable in my time. There'll be people who tell you even now, I'm relatively unlovable sometimes even now. But God has never wavered in his love for me. Nor has he ever wavered in his love for you. The way that he loved you from the foundations of the world is the way that he loves you right now and the way that he'll love you until you're face to face with him in eternity and beyond for all of eternity. He loves you now. And man, let me tell you, if I stepped off his podium and was done for the day, that would give you plenty to meditate on until we talked again. True. Because the love of God is that big, that significant, that overarching in everything that he's given to us. And so we talked the first time about that. God's grace is a product of God's love because it's his nature to love. But he didn't just determine to pour out his love on us. He determined that we should understand it. And so he had to give us a revelation of it by the power of his Holy Spirit. And I talked to you last week about Paul's revelation and how on the Damascus Road, he, he tells the story in Galatians chapter 1 of who he was what God did, and who he is now. And all of us have a, because of grace, an I was, but God, I am story. That's not new verbiage to y'all. I tell you that all the time because I think it's the most succinct way you can communicate the love of God to the people around you that may not know it. I was a drunkard, a whoremonger, for lack of a better way to put it. I was, I, I, well, I'm just not a good person. There's a bunch of other stuff, too. Probably not going to say it. But I was those things. I'm not those things anymore. Because the grace of God moved on me in 2006 and changed who I am. 
declaring lordship. I pursue who I am because of the grace that he continues to extend to me. And I am right now who I am because of grace and will be great who I am later because of grace. Not because of anything that I've done. That should bring us comfort. You know why? Because there's nothing you could do. There's no action you could take. There's no prayer that you could pray in your own self, unprovoked by the Spirit, that's going to get you. You're not waking up in the morning and saying, you know what? My granny always talked about it. I think I'm going to get saved today. It's not how it works. You're dead in your trespasses until the Holy Spirit of God draws you to himself and has done so through Christ Jesus. That's grace. I would go as far as to argue, and it's not really an argument as much as it is a statement, that Jesus is grace. Jesus, if grace, the definition of grace, as we've discussed it, is twofold. It is the unmerited favor of God. It's whatever God gives you that you don't deserve, which is literally everything. But it is also, grace is also the restoration of a love that we lost. And Jesus is both of those things. Jesus is the unmerited favor we didn't deserve for the purpose of restoring us back to a love that we lost through our own decisions. And I praise God for that. Amen? Amen. Jesus. Why would he do such a thing? He would do such a thing because he's a God of compassion. Matthew 9, 36 says, Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them. You know what compassion means? It's mercy provoked to action. I could have mercy for somebody. But, oh, man, their situation is the worst. Just be rent in pain for them. But until I take action on their behalf, I've not shown them any compassion. To seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited. Anybody ever felt like that? They were like sheep without a shepherd. That's exactly what we were until Jesus stepped in the middle of our story. Jesus, although more than capable of empathy, didn't stop at empathy. He was compelled to action through grace to meet the need. And that's what I want to talk to you today out of Luke chapter 9. Grace meets the need. And I'm going to start today, I'm teaching actually out of 9, 12, or starting in 10. I'm going to talk about the feeding of the 5,000. It's a story many of us are familiar with, but as you hear me say quite often, don't let the familiarity breed complacency in you because God might have something new for you today. Verse 10 Then the apostles returned. They gave an account of him to him of all they had done. Taking them with him, he drew withdrew by himself to a city named Bethsaida. Let me tell you why I start there because I want you to understand because it's going to be important in a minute. What's happened? They've returned to him and they're kind of bragging about all the stuff that they were able to do. They're talking about how awesome the ministry is. Because in the beginning of chapter 9, he says this, And he, that's Jesus, called the twelve together, gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. He still does that today, by the way. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. He still does that today, by the way. 
And so he did that. They went about their ministry. They did everything that they were called to do according to the authority that they'd been given. And then it says they came back, they returned, and they gave an account of him to him about what they had accomplished under the authority they'd been given. And so he takes them. And he's essentially going to withdraw with them, go to Bethsaida, which is on the other side of the lake. They're going to go on a pastor's retreat. Right, let's go take some time to rest. I know this has been hard on y'all. Ministry's hard. Anybody ever do any real ministry? Yeah, I'm not talking about pastors in a room. I'm talking about people that have loved people for no other reason than to love people. That's ministry because people are the worst. And it, they'll just suck the red right off your lollipop sometimes. Right? Amen? And as long as you know people are crazy, when you get into their crazy, you're not that mad about it. But from time to time, you need to create distance to refresh, seek the face of God and pray. And so that's what he's doing. He said, we're going to go to the other side of Bethsaida and we're going to get away. But sadly, this happens. Not sadly. But the crowds were aware of this and followed him. And welcoming them, he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. So they had heard, oh, he's heading over there. So they ran around the lake and they were there when they got there. All the 12 apostles are all, man, we're about to take a vacation, go take a couple of days off, just spend some time in prayer, recharge. They get to the, like I can see them, their boat getting to the shore and they're all, is that people? <laughs> Oh, that's people. Oh, that's a lot of people. That's 5,000 men. He says, now the day was ending. And the 12 came and said to him, send the crowd away. This was after he'd already ministered to them. Send the crowd away that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get something to eat. For here, we are in a desolate place. Are they being merciful or compassionate? They're showing mercy. They're not being compassionate. They want to act like they care without actually doing anything about the problem. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. This is Jesus tells them. Well, don't send them off. Give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fishes. Unless perhaps we go and buy food for all these people. For there was about 5,000 men. That would equate to about 15,000 people, just so you know. So there were about 5,000 men, and he said to the disciples, have them sit down to eat in groups of about 50 each. They did so and had them all sit down. Then he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them and broke them, that is the bread, and kept giving them to the disciples to set before the people. And they all ate, everybody say all ate, and were satisfied. And the broken pieces which they had left over were picked up, about 12 baskets full. Amen. Let me talk to you about what, the, what need grace meets. First, grace meets the need for divine truth. Grace meets the need for divine truth. 11a, the first part of 11, says, But the crowds were aware of this and followed him. I've told you about that already and welcomed them. And he began speaking to them about the kingdom of heaven. 
the first thing grace, Jesus, we've already discussed, Jesus is grace. The first thing grace decided to do to them was the only reason he came in the first place was to tell them that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When he came out of the desert, what were his first words? Repent for the kingdom of what? God is at hand. What is he saying? He's saying, listen, there's a message. There's an eternity coming. There's only one way to that eternity, and I am it. Let me explain to you. I want to give you everything you have access to in God. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, but you need to pay attention. Grace always reveals divine truth. Why did he need to to reveal divine truth to them? Because they were deceived. These verses, John 6, 2, they saw signs and were, they saw signs. In John 6, 2, it says they saw signs. And apparently they were chasing those signs. John 6, 15 says they tried to take him by force to make him king. They were more worried about who Jesus was in their own perception of the physical than who he was in the spiritual. And so they saw him as a miracle worker but not as a Messiah. What's the problem with that? The problem with seeing Jesus as a miracle worker and not a Messiah is it leads us to a what have you done for lately, done for me lately theology. Good. If I just see God as somebody that's going to supply my need, if for whatever reason there's a time when I need testing and he stops meeting my need to prove something to me or to cut something out of me or to cause me to see him better, which does happen because the teacher's silent during the test. I'm going to move from a he's the Lord of my life to a what has he done for me lately and he's abandoned me and forsaken me. Let me tell you, God has not abandoned you and forsaken you. He is just as here right now as he's ever been. He is omnipresent, which means he's in this space right now. If you want to see the presence of God, start praying for the manifest presence of God. And he'll show up. But you have to believe that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that that grace is available to you. We have a need to understand divine truth. Man, I could go on and on about this. I probably should, but I got another service coming on up after this one. Jesus is everything. John 6, 27 says, Do not work for food which perishes, but... but for the food which endures to eternal life. Guess what that is? That's the bread of life. That's Jesus, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. Jesus stopped to tell them divine truth because they didn't understand the most important thing, why he came in the first place. So why did he come? What is the divine truth he wanted to teach them about the kingdom of God? And I'm going, to, I'm going to go back, digress if you don't mind. He came because he loves you. And I, grace should bring us so much peace. The creator God of the universe determined out of all the things in all of the created universe, Miss Yvonne, to know you, to know the numbers of hairs on your head. Your name is engraved in the palm of his hand. He knows your situation and holds you dear in that situation. 
and I would say the same of every person here because he loves you. He loves us so much that in many of the parables he explained the love that he had for us. In the parable of the lost, sheep, coin, and son, Luke chapter 15, his God loves us, proves that he loves us enough to seek and accept that which has been lost. Even when that which has been lost was lost on purpose. Even when you walk away, the Father still sits on his porch waiting for you to come home. Even when you wander off, he chases you down and carries you back on his shoulders. Even when you roll away, he flips over the refrigerator looking for you. You know why? Not because he's obligated to. He's not obligated to anything. He's God, but because he loves you. The parable of the unrepentant slave shows how much he loves us. He loves enough to, to forgive us so that we can be forgiven. We have a debt to pay. But, in, but also, because we were forgiven a debt, we have a debt to forgive. People find this, man, I can't find wholeness. Well, you know why you can't find wholeness? Because you won't let your brokenness go. Bitterness will kill you. Unforgiveness will kill you. And if you won't carry unforgiveness in your heart, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's not my truth. That's scriptural truth. Do yourself a favor. You don't have to let people back in your circle, but you have to forgive them. Somebody punched me in the mouth. I'm going to forgive them. But guess what? We ain't hanging out anymore. He loves us enough to throw a great banquet for us. According to Luke 14, and this is probably one of my favorite parables. God threw a banquet, or this guy threw a banquet. This is God in the story. And he says, go, go get the people. Go get, go get the kind of the uppity-ups in society. Go get them, bring them in here. Tell them I prepared a great feast for them. And everybody was busy. The servant comes back and says, they don't, they're not coming. And he goes, well, go get the middle class. I'm paraphrasing. So they go out. Servants come back, so they don't have time either. He said, then do me a favor. Go out there and beat the bushes. In modern vernacular, I want the drug addicts. I want the prostitutes. I want the people that everybody else has forgotten. I want the heroin addict. I want, I want whatever the worst of the worst is to show that my love isn't connected to your righteousness because my love will make you righteous. And I've prepared a place for you. You want to know why our philosophy of ministry here is love them, serve them, and speak kindly to them? Because we've got a banquet to go to. And I don't care what you look like. God died for you the same as he died for me. I don't care what you talk like. I don't care what you do. Declare Jesus Christ as Lord. The Holy Spirit will clean that off of you. God told us to be fishers of men, not cleaners of them. My pastor tells a story about when he was in prison. He was cussing a lot. Like he said, I cussed so much, man, I cussed in my prayers. Didn't even know. It was wrong. And so finally he reads something in the Bible about how the tongue should be, shouldn't, shouldn't, he shouldn't talk like that. There should be no vile speech. And he went to the guy that 
walked him into the and prayed the prayer of salvation with him. And he said, hey, I think the guy's name was Junior or something. He goes, Junior, how come you didn't tell me that I ain't supposed to be cussing? And he goes, it kind of says, did God tell you stop cussing? He goes, no. He goes, well, that ain't your biggest problem. <laughs> Can we just be okay with people who cussing ain't their biggest problem? And love them and serve them and speak kindly to them because that's what God did. That's what grace does. Now, walk alongside them. If you be who you are and you're reflecting Jesus, it's a matter of time before they see who they should be. To beat somebody in the head with you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do this. Let me tell you what I tell people to do when they get saved. I need you to start praying. I need you to start reading your Bible. I need you to start attending a fellowship of believers. Because God will reveal himself to you in those situations. I don't say, you better show up at this thing and I'm going to dog you for 30 minutes about how bad you suck. (laughs) Nobody's going to be cool with that. We wonder why our churches are declining. That's exactly why our churches are declining. I've gone too far off the beaten path. My point is, God loves us no matter where we are and grace provides the need. Amen? And it's not just true for the for the parables, it's true for us. Not only does he meet the need for divine truth, but according to 11b, he meets the need for healing. 11b reads like this. And curing those who had need of healing. This was what Jesus did all day. After having ministered all day, ministered all day, healing. Matthew 4.23, Jesus was going throughout the Galilee, teaching, this was his habit, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Did you catch that? What kind of disease? What kind of sickness? Every. But you know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say every person. It says every kind of sickness, every kind of disease. There are people that Jesus walked past that he didn't heal. Did you know that? People are, oh, that's messing some people's theology up. Well, that's not, that's not my Jesus. Well, then you ain't got the right Jesus. Because it's Jesus' habit to go into the temple. Right? Do you know there was a cripple at the gay temple? At the, at the golden, um, at the gay beautiful? It was crippled from birth. Or blind from birth. I can't remember now. Crippled. And he was taken there every day since he was a child, which means every time Jesus went to the temple, he would have had to walk past him. If he healed everybody, why is that dude still crippled when Jesus is already raised from the dead and in heaven and the apostles walked through there? Let me tell you why. Or let me posit why. I can't tell you why. I posit to you that it's because God will heal when he gets the most glory for healing. And that healing turned that city upside down. You ain't got your healing yet? Guy's waiting on your glory moment, bro. But let me tell you this. Because I live in a world of reality, and I think we all should. How many of you have prayed for God to heal somebody? And he didn't heal them. 
or pray for somebody to live and they didn't live. I have too. And it's sad. But you know what he still did? He healed every kind of disease and every kind of sickness because he's sovereign. And just because he didn't heal them like we thought he should heal them doesn't mean he didn't heal them. As a matter of fact, the healing that he would have given them in the physical is second place to the healing they got in their death. We got the wrong perspective on eternity, ladies and gentlemen. I know that I know that every person I prayed healing for, whether they got healed right then or got healed in eternity, got healed. And that's awesome. It sucks. I mean, it's the worst. Probably shouldn't say sucks. But it's the worst. <laughs> but it's true. Many of us, I hear people say this all the time. And I, and I don't fault them for it necessarily. It's just the whimsical thing people say. You ask them, you say, how you doing? And they go, man, any day above ground is a good day. Well, that's true, I guess. But any day below ground would be a better day. What am I saying? Let's keep an eternal perspective on our life. Because Jesus, grace, meets the need of healing. Even if that need of healing isn't what you think it is. Amen? Everybody all right? No. Hmm. And that's spiritual and physical. Jeremiah 17, 14 reads like this. Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved. Heal me, physical. Save me, spiritual. Heal me, and I'll be healed. Save me, and I'll be saved. For you are my praise. That's the best piece. Because it tells me why he heals me in the spiritual and in the physical. So that he may be our praise. Perhaps we'd see more healing if we were more praising. Our job is to pray and supplication with a heart of what? Thanksgiving. You know what that means? You know why I'm able to pray? Even my initial prayer for healing and thanksgiving? Because I have faith to believe that God hears my prayer. And so I get to celebrate a prayer of thanksgiving even before I see it. I believe that's the definition of faith in the first place. And so we say, I know that I know that you are my praise because I know that I know you heal and you save. Not because of anything that I deserve, but because you are a God of grace and you sent grace to move on my behalf. Number three, grace meets the need for provision. I'm going to paraphrase 12 through 17. Then he took the five loaves and the two fishes and looking up to heaven, he blessed them and broke them and they all ate and were satisfied. 5,000 people. Jesus did two things here that are absolutely necessary if you're going to receive the provision you need. If you'll look at this text, he looked up to heaven and he blessed what was in his hand. We don't spend enough time looking up to heaven. 
or being thankful for what we already have in our hand. God's a God of provision. And his provision is a grace over our life. All you got to do is read the book of Exodus. I mean, it's everywhere, but it's, it's so obvious in Exodus. They were hungry. God gave them manna. They got tired of manna. God gave them quail. Cloud by day. So, so not only they could be directed, but they might be guarded from the sun. Fire by night, not only so they could be directed, but so that they might be heated in the desert night. Did y'all know the desert nights are actually very cold? Parted the Red Sea, provided water where there was seemingly no water. Gave them the promised land by the strength of his own hand, not by military might. They took it by military might, but they didn't have the force necessary to actually take what they took. God did that. God is a God of provision. He hasn't forgotten us. And so we need to look up to heaven, recognize the God that we serve and the grace that he has given us for provision and be thankful. And then bless what's in our hand. It frustrates me, man. It frustrates me, bro. When I hear people, my life's the worst. All I got is two nickels to rub together. I barely got two nickels to rub together. Praise God for the two nickels you got to rub together. You might have three nickels tomorrow. There's been days I've had two nickels to rub together, maybe. There's days I thought about having two nickels to rub together. But you know what we were anyway after we got saved? We were grateful that we weren't hungry. And you know what happened? I don't can't explain it. Don't ask me God's economy. People show up at our house with money. People show up at our house with groceries. People send checks to our house. I don't know how that happens, but you know what I do know? I was blessed and blessed God for what I did have, and God ensured that I continued to have. That's grace that we don't deserve. That's unmerited favor we don't deserve given by the sacrifice and the work of Christ Jesus. Mm, that's good. It seems like we don't have enough, but we do. Psalms 37, 25. I have been young and I am now old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging for bread. Give him thanks when he shows up. Bless him for the grace he's already provided for you. And finally, number four, grace expects service-mindedness. What? Love has a responsibility Yep, love has a responsibility. The grace that you got, you're supposed to give to others. You want to know why the world doesn't trust the church anymore? Because the church stopped giving what it received. Grace has, love has a cost and an expectation. The love I have for my wife is incredible. Wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. But there's an expectation on it. She does so many things for me. She cooks for me. She washes my clothes. Like I live 
with a woman that should have been born probably in the 1700s. <laughs> Praise God. You know? Uh, me and Chris, my buddy that's in town, talked about grocery shopping the other day. He goes, you ever try such and such sausage? I said, I don't know, man. I ain't been grocery shopping 17 years. Her brother said, he's so spoiled that, talking about me, that if he could figure out a way for her to breathe for him, <laughs> he'd let her. And he's probably right. <laughs> Chris has been in our house for three days. He knows. She and she would do it. But you know what? She expects that. She expects something for the love that she gets. And rightfully so. She expects me to love her back. She expects me to be a man of fidelity. She expects me to be an honor, a man of honor. She expects me to tend to her and take care of her and sure nothing harm comes to her. That I love her as much as she loves me. That I don't step out on her. And God expects the same thing from us. Because that's what he gave us. Not that he needs that from us, but the people around us need that from him. And he made us the conduit by which that happens. And I can prove it to you in this scripture. Imagine this scene. They set off to rest. They don't get to. And the apostles are probably fussy about it. And here's why I think they were fussy. Because they had determined to concentrate on what ministry costs them instead of what ministry affords them. Ministry will cost you. And it'll cost you almost everything. But it affords you so much. I have never had more joy, more peace, more satisfaction than I have had in ministry. And I've done some really cool stuff. But service affords us so much more. They tried to send them away. They said, we don't want to deal with them. They tried to mask it with concern. Oh, we can't feed them. We better send them away. You know? <laughs> And Jesus said, feed them. And they look at these five loaves and two fish and say, we, we, we don't have enough to feed them. We got to go buy some food. Knowing that there was no place to buy food for 5,000 people there. And so Jesus took it and broke it like we just talked about. Blessed it like we just talked about. And then he put them to work. God has put you to work. This is what he says. And I'm going to paraphrase the text. He says, you give them something to eat, have them sit down to eat in groups of about 50, and keep giving them to the disciples, and kept giving them to the disciples to set before the people. What does that mean? That means Jesus took these five loaves and two fishes and broke them, and then broke them some more, and then broke them some more, until 15,000 people, I know it says 5,000 men, but that would have been about 15,000 people total divided by 50 people in each group is 300 groups. I want you to, I need you to imagine if you can the expanse of this crowd. 50 or I'm sorry, 
300 groups of 50 people. 300 groups divided by 12 disciples equals 25 groups each. And there's only so much bread they can carry at a time. So many fish they can carry at a time. So they go get some bread from Jesus. They gather it up. They bring it back to the first group. The first two or three people in the group of 50 get to eat. Then they got to go back. And then they got to go feed a few more in that 50. And they have to do that for 25 groups each. Had to have taken an incredible amount of time. And they probably didn't want to because they were tired. But God doesn't care if we're tired. He gave us a mission to accomplish. And we're called to do it. We're called to accomplish that mission. Amen? Amen. And we should gratefully accomplish that mission. And then Jesus does only the thing that Jesus can do. And I, I love this. These five loaves and two fishes, there wasn't enough to feed them. He broke so much of it apart that he told him, he said, now go gather the remnant. Go gather what's left over. And there can't be any other reason for this to be in the text, but it says there were 12 baskets full of leftovers. You know why I think that is? Because he wanted to tell them, don't ever question my ability again. I'm going to make you carry what's left over off this field to show you just how big a God you serve is, just how capable I am of extending the grace that I have to the people around me. That's good. Amen? Amen. And that's what he challenges us to do. He challenges us to be the grace that we received to other people because the love that we've received holds a responsibility. Amen? That's what I challenge you to.